I'm Julia Tertian, host of Radio Cherry Bomb. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today I'm coming to you from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to After the Jump every Wednesday at 1 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org or subscribe and download the podcast on iTunes anytime. Today marks the 100th episode of After the Jump. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. <laughs> and it's the final episode of our 2014 season. The past two years of hosting this show have provided me with some of the greatest learning lessons, inspiration, and advice for both my life and work in a way that I really could never have expected. I began this show as a personal project. I identified one of my biggest weaknesses, interviews, and wanted to throw myself into the deep end of a situation where I would have no choice but to improve those skills, or to discover once and for all that interviews just weren't my thing. But what I discovered was not that was that I loved not only interviewing people, but that I really thrived and grew from those one-on-one interactions and conversations in a way that I just wasn't getting from working online. So don't get me wrong, my first love will always be the internet, but these afternoons spent right here in this tiny shipping container radio station have been some of the most important and enlightening of my life so far. So for the last show of the season, I decided to look back at all 100 shows and share the 10 biggest lessons I've learned. These lessons have nothing to do with hosting a show, but instead have everything to do with learning to be a better business owner, a more compassionate person, a better listener, and endless ways to learn how to connect better with the people around me and all of us. One of the things that struck me the most over the course of 100 shows was how inspired I was by the working parents I had the pleasure of interviewing. From Meg Mateo Alasco and Lorena Berezueta to Chris Silas Neal and G.B. Tran, working artists that have to balance their love of family with their love of art have a set of challenges that I can't even begin to understand. From those challenges and their honesty and openness in discussing them, I learned my first big lesson, which was, there is no perfect balance. Life and work are always a series of back-and-forth adjustments and a constant game of checks and balances. But it's human nature to want to find some sort of final place of balance where you've reached your perfect state of existence and everything will be this way forever. I've told myself for years that if I just worked harder, if I ate more green things, if I got more sleep, and if I found more time to run, I would get there. But what I've learned is that there doesn't exist. And that's actually a great thing. What does exist is the knowledge and understanding that life will always, always be a series of adjustments. There will be days where your work wins out over family or where general life obligations win out. But there will be days also where your family and life went out over work and any other responsibilities you have at the office. And that's totally okay. None of us can predict what life and work will bring in the future, but we can know this. It will always change. And if we imagine ourselves like a boat on an occasionally rough sea, we can better visualize and understand that the only way to deal with those rough patches is to roll with them and to just adjust as we go along. And perhaps most importantly, to learn to cut ourselves a little bit of slack. None of us have the secrets to having it all. 
So working on being more compassionate with ourselves and with others will help us lead happier and ultimately more fulfilling lives in the long run. The second lesson I learned was about the importance of slowing down and taking a moment to really look at what's happening around you. Most of the guests I've had the pleasure of interviewing are happy people, some more outwardly than others, but in general, I would say the vast majority were people that seemed to have a good head on their shoulders and smiled more often than not. On and off the air, I would try to get to the core of what made these people or allowed them to feel the sense of lightness and awareness that I admired. And it all boiled down to lesson number two, which is live in the moment, every single moment. Enjoy where you are right now and appreciate it because every stage of growth and achievement has its own new set of challenges and stress. My secret vice at every airport is buying all of the gossip and business magazines. I tear through the gossip magazines immediately, of course, and then I move on to Inc., Fast Company, and Business Insider, and anything else I can get my hands on. And one of the things that's always struck me most about the advice that I read in those magazines is how much they emphasize future living. Future living is, to me, when you focus more on the promise of something coming way down the road than you do what's right in front of you right now. And while I certainly see the importance of planning for your future, doing that too much can make it easy to lose track of what you've already built, what you've already achieved, and what you have around you right now. I've been able to interview people of all stages of their careers, and if there's one thing I've noticed about all of them, it's that they miss the earlier stages of their work, and they wish they'd paid more attention to those beginning days as much as the big dream goals down the road. Those ones that have been able to find the sense of being present now seem to be much happier and better able to take on the challenges and opportunities that come their way. Lesson number three has to do with two of my favorite guests of all time. Todd Oldham and Genevieve Gorder. Both were instrumental in my career and life goals without knowing it, and even before we met and talked, they both inspired me with their passion and excitement for their work and life. And from them, I learned lesson number three, always keep learning. I think rest is a crucial part of any successful work and life equation, but the idea of resting, especially on your laurels, for too long is something that I worry about constantly. The world, especially online, is always changing, sometimes faster than I can even keep pace with. But even if I don't keep up or stay ahead of every curve, I can make sure that I am always growing and learning more. Not only that learning new skills and ideas help with work, or sorry, not only knowing that learning new skills and ideas help with work and the quality of work you produce, but continuing to learn keeps your mind open and helps you stay creative and be inspired by innovation and fresh ideas you might otherwise have missed out on. And most importantly to me, it gives you the chance to fail again. Why would anyone want that? Well, because I think we learn more when we're not best at something and when we're not the tip top of our game. And when we're uncomfortable, we learn a lot about ourselves. Of course, it's important to build a set of skills that serve you well and work without you even thinking about them. But when you introduce something totally new and foreign to your mind and to your hands, it lets you rediscover just how much room you have to grow and change. It also lets you learn another valuable lesson, which is there is never only one right way to do something. The best solutions sometimes come when something doesn't go as expected. And I want to play a clip from a show with Genevieve Gorder, which ran just a couple months ago, where she talked about a home renovation problem that didn't go quite right, 
and what she learned from it. Here's what she had to say. Um, it was refreshing. I think I learned a lot about how to be a better designer again. And we all need to do that in whatever we do for a living every couple years. It's like the filters. You just need to come in. You need to evolve and grow and learn. Otherwise, you're bored and you shouldn't be doing it mm-hmm. anyway. Right? Absolutely. I think one of the things that stood out for me most watching this show were the moments where you not only like really rolled with the, the, the mistakes or the problems that happened, but you made them create a better project than maybe you had even imagined. And I think one of my favorite examples is there was a bit of a wallpaper mishap in your daughter's bedroom and it wasn't the color palette that you had wanted, but you guys worked with it. And I remember you saying on camera that like the end result was something even better than you had thought of designing. What role does sort of rolling with the punches play in your design philosophy? That's a good question. I think there are really two kinds of designers in the world. There's the architect's who come into design where they are more of a science-based approach to what we do. It's methodical. It's sketched out. It's elevated. There are multiple plans, even before sometimes they get to the space. And then there's the other designer, which I definitely fall into this category, is the artist that comes into design, where it's much more about the feeling of things. I won't even start designing until I see where the light hits that certain place on your floor where the couch is going to be. I need to feel it. And I'll sit there all day by myself and feel it before I spit something out. That doesn't always work on television as it's not the most (laughs) efficient way to design. Um, But it genuinely connects the viewer because I design from the heart. And it's I think that comment from Genevieve, and especially ending with the idea of designing from the heart and keeping an open mind, is something I so admire about her, about designers like Todd Oldham, and so many people that I had on air this year. The idea that you're never at a perfect place. You will never know the only right way to do something. You will always be learning and always be making a mistake, and then changing based on that is something that I find not scary, but actually quite empowering. Lesson number four gets at the heart of what I've learned from this radio show in the larger sense and in the smaller sense from every single guest that has ever joined me on air. That lesson is that your personal story is meaningful, important, and valid. I was surprised by how many guests were surprised when I asked them to join me on air. Several people felt their stories or businesses weren't interesting enough, but I, of course, disagreed. Once they were on air, it is always clear to me how important each person's story is. At the end of every show, most people would be surprised by themselves by how much they had learned from talking about their own lives and businesses. Too many truly great ideas, voices, and art are halted or delayed because of self-doubt. I think we all know what it feels like, and I can say that after 100 episodes of listening to a wide range of people, that every single story matters. The only thing scarier than sharing your story is what the rest of the world will be missing out on if they don't hear yours. Before we cut to a break, I want to share the fifth lesson out of 10, which was inspired by a recent show about the future of print magazines. After talking with Paul Lowe and Paul Vital of Sweet Paul, Michelle Outland of Gather Journal, and Janine Van Gool of Uppercase Magazine, it became clear that even the most dream of jobs require a lot of passion and hard work. So number five is to remember that no job is perfect. So be sure that you are passionate about what you do because every job has a day where it feels like a slog. I want to play two quick clips from that show. The first from Michelle Outland talking about what you need to do to have a job like this. 
Um, biggest lesson and or advice I could give is just be super passionate about what you're going to do because it's going to consume your life. <laughs> you will be working 24-7 on it. So if it's not something you love, don't do it. <laughs> I don't think the advice can get any simpler than that. And Paul echoed that with his advice later in the show. You know, you have to, you have to be able to clone yourself into at least 100 people because you have to, like, you have to be an expert and like, in absolutely everything, um, from shipping to printing to going over contracts to answering emails. There's so many things. But I would say that the most important thing is that you have to have a passion and then you also have to have a very unique voice because why are why are people going to buy a magazine what are you going to say what's what's going to be in it you know every Paul's advice is something I go back to over and over again. I think so many of us who work in the creative field struggle with feeling like, are we doing enough? Is somebody else doing better than we are? When will I get to that place that I think someone else is that I want to be? But in reality, even the people who have the jobs that we all dream about have to do the same things we don't want to do. They all have to deal with accounting. They all have to deal with shipping. They all have to pay taxes. There is no perfect job. And I think the more that we think about that, the better able we'll be to accept the things that come with even the the most fun parts of our dream jobs. Everyone has a moment where the thing they thought they always wanted to achieve can be tough. So keep that in mind, and I think it'll help all of us appreciate the jobs we have on a daily basis a little bit more. After a quick break, I'll be right back to share my final five lessons of the year. Stay tuned. And welcome back to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney. And today, for my final show of the season, which also happens to be the 100th episode, I'm counting down the top 10 lessons I've learned from two years of After the Jump. Lesson number six has to do with one of the most recent shows I did. I found myself re-inspired, and re-inspired in ways I had not expected. I was joined by multimedia artist and filmmaker Ivan Cash, and he connected the idea of sometimes being lonely and maybe even a little bit sad to take all those feelings and think about them as the actual creative force behind truly great artwork that connects people and brings them together. I want to play a quick clip from that show. And then I think a lot of my projects have an element of human connection, and that's a very broad umbrella, but I mentioned being a loner, and I think that loneliness is a really important I don't know if it's a feeling or an aspect of life that doesn't get talked about enough but I think it's something that we all experience on some level and maybe we can do a good job avoiding it or pushing it away and not feeling it too often but I think that it's just something that 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 motivates people it motivates me um and I think it, it it's it can be beautiful it can be dark but 
I think the, the counter of that is intimacy and feeling really close to someone. I think Ivan's interview really made me rethink the way I think about the undertone of so much of the artwork that I love and that I think a lot of us produce. And that has to do with feeling lonely or feeling different from other people. And I love the way that Ivan turns that whole concept on its head and makes you think about the way that actually leads to connection. And from this, I learned the biggest lesson, number six, which is human interaction is at the core of everything we do as artists, as writers, and as makers. We may feel disconnected at points, but by sharing our voices with other people, we are able to truly connect with them. Lesson number seven connects to one of the biggest struggles I have as someone working in the creative community, which is whether or not what I do on a daily basis makes a difference in the bigger sense of the world and of the word difference. Like everybody else, I've been reading the news with a heavy heart lately and feeling overwhelmed by frustration and anger. And then when I go back to writing a post about wallpaper, I feel the contrast between those two things so sharply. But after 100 shows, I've seen firsthand what the power of design can truly be. At a smaller personal level, while I realize that art and design aren't survival necessities, so many of those pieces are directly connected to the financial survival of members of our community. What may strike me as a post about just another product can turn into a sale that turns into a rent check for someone working to start their own business. That's an interaction I try to think about every now and then when I'm feeling too down on the idea of working in something decorative. But in the larger sense, as I learned in episode 85 with Don Hancock of Firebelly Design and Charlene King, design has the power to make a real difference in the world and larger issues of justice and survival. And all you have to do is show up. I want to play a quick clip from Don Hancock where she talks about how you can make a difference as an artist. I know it's easier said than done to say, you know, just go out and do it. But I think volunteering is an example where it's not about how much money you have. It's not about, um, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be about a specific skill set. It can just simply be about your time and, and spending time with somebody who you think is going to um, really use your expertise or your shoulder or whatever it may be um and finding a cause that really uh, i think speaks to you is a great way to do that dawn is someone who spent so much of her life and of her work dedicating her artistic skills to helping out people who need that whether she's doing pro bono work or bringing awareness to causes which is what charlene king the other guest from the show also did they are great examples of how design and people with artistic skills can use those to give a voice to give a face and to give power to movements that connect to greater issues of politics, survival, and justice. And that, for me, was one of the most important things I took away from this second season of After the Jump, which was that design and people who are creative can do such powerful things to make a difference in the world. Lesson number eight connects to one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done, which was episode number 73, where I spoke with Catherine Fortunato of Lizzie Fortunato Jewels and Claire Mazur. Of, of a kind, who's one of the co-owners. That lesson was that understanding what goes into the things that surround you at home is so crucial and important. Much like the food movement that swept the country, people now understand why it's so incredibly important to think about what goes into what you eat, how it was made, and how the people who raised or grew that food are treated. That's not necessarily a concept that has come all the way over to fashion and to the home design world. Catherine and Claire had a truly brilliant show where they talked about all of the very real difficulties and costs that go into great independent work. 
from how many trips you have to take to the factory to make sure that things are being made the way that you want, to buying materials that are ethically sourced and produced, to really supporting the designers by charging prices that they need to make a living wage. Understanding all of those things that go into the objects that surround you will make you change the way that you look at not only your home, but the world around you in general. And I think understanding that lesson and applying that to everything I think about when I go into a situation to buy a single object really changed the way that I shop from now on. I have far fewer things in my home and in my life than I ever have. And that's primarily because I think about Catherine and Claire every time I go to buy something. Hearing their stories and how difficult it is to really make a living and support somebody who is paying workers ethically, who's sourcing things ethically, and who's really taking the time to emphasize quality over quantity, it really affects the way you will shop. So if you haven't listened to episode number 73, I strongly suggest that you do and urge you to. It is a really wonderful show and kind of gets at the core of not just what I do here at After the Jump, but what we do at Design Sponge, because I think that truly special and high quality work is worth the cost. And it changes the way you interact with those pieces in your home and will change the way that you look at them for the rest of your life. Episode number nine has to do with an issue that I still wish I had touched on more this season and had been trying to do on the site more, which is it is our community's responsibility to show and celebrate both the diversity of our community and to try to drive up the inclusiveness that exists. Tina Shoulders of Laid Back Home and also um, who teaches an incredible exposure program for children at risk who want to learn different skills that have to do with graphic design or art direction and artwork. She is an incredible inspiration to me and she was the guest on episode number nine. And Tina talked about how important it is to really make sure that all events in the creative community are not only inclusive of people of all colors, all uh genders and of any other identification, but to make sure that their stories are heard just as much as being included. So I want to play a quick clip from her show. Um, especially conferences, I think it's almost whoever organizes the conference, they can do whatever they want, but I think it's almost their responsibility to make it as diverse as possible, not simply just as far as color goes, but just the conversation. And there's richness in the conversation when you have people from varying backgrounds. Like, I believe they do themselves a disservice. If I look at, for one, I've pitched um, Alt Summit in general. And part of it was to one of my pitches were talking about diversity in design or just showing the diversity in design. And it wasn't simply, you know, black and white or something like that. But there's such a richness in knowing about people's different backgrounds, knowing. Tina went on to describe this concept at great length, but I wanted to run that short clip because it's something that sort of plays in the back of my mind all the time. I think as somebody who works in the media end of design, I've all too often fallen back on the crutch of thinking that it's too difficult to find these things. And shouldn't it be part of the responsibility of artists to make sure their work is known? But I have learned how incredibly wrong I was about that idea. And Tina has been instrumental in really making me change the way I think about things. I think she had a great point 
point when Tina said, if you want to see different perspectives, you have to look in different places. And really putting that onus on myself and hopefully to everyone else in the community that has a part in giving people a platform and exposure to think about our responsibility to make sure we represent not just the people that are easiest to find and whose work is in magazines and people who have the money to hire a publicist to get their work out there. It's really our responsibility to make sure that we go and find the people who are making great work to show the full face of our community and not just the people that we see every day in newspapers and in magazines. My final lesson is some, comes from someone who I think, <clears throat> excuse me, was one of the most fun shows of the year and was one of the shows that I got the most emails about and requests to have back, which was episode number 60 with interior designer John Call. The lesson I learned from John was to not be afraid to have an opinion and to stand behind it. We all define ourselves in those moments, and those moments are what make people believe in us and our brand. So I want to run a quick clip from John's show where he really sort of lives that concept. Well, for me right now, I've, I've had some opportunities um, to, to talk to people. And quite frankly, educating the public is what excites me. The work that I create in my company is just meant to be a litmus test and proof that what I'm saying isn't absolutely a crock of crap, <laughs> that it does work, that if you keep a simple interior, it will have time to grow, that it, you can move into it through all phases of your life, no matter who you are. And you can start that when you're 19 and until the end of time, you're going to be happy with it. And those types of things and, and speaking with people and trying to find out what feels current and relevant and honest and true in interiors, that, that, that turns me on. And that's the conversation I want to keep having with people. So the more I can do it, I love it. And, and that's why today meant so much. Thank John's interview was a blast for a number of reasons, but I really love that he wasn't afraid to take a stance, to have an opinion, to see what the result of that would be, and to really encourage people to see the world through his eyes and through the lens that he works with at his design studio. I think so many people, when they get in front of a microphone or get in front of an interviewer, tend to fall back on lines that are comfortable or safe, and John's entire interview was a wonderful example of why that's a terrible idea, and being honest and being open open and not being afraid to have an opinion is a wonderful thing. I don't think I've gotten a response as strong to a show as I did with John's because John really wasn't afraid to say the things he truly felt and to stand behind them. And that's something that applies not just to interior designers and not just to fine artists, but to everyone listening. I so often am afraid to take a stance with something. And then when I sit in front of somebody who has the courage to do that, it really inspires me to really make my voice be heard and to stand behind the things that I really believe in. So for me, that's the biggest lesson I've taken away from this, and it's the one I'll end with today. But before we go, I want to talk about a couple of things. First, the lessons that I've learned here are going to stay with me for the rest of my life and are going to continue to inform and inspire me, and I truly hope that they will do the same for all of you listening. If you follow me on Design Sponge, you may have seen last week that my wife, Julia, and I just bought and moved into a new but very, very old home in upstate New York. So I'm going to be taking some of the advice I've gotten on air here and cut back a little bit on some of my work projects to make some more time to work on our home and the life that we're building together. So I'm going to be taking a break from After the Jump next season to see what lessons restoring a 150-year-old home can teach me. This show has truly been a gift and such a joy to hosts. The conversations I've had on air here, as well as the conversations I've had in person through email with listeners, have truly been some of the most important and meaningful moments in my life so far. 
So I want to end by thanking everyone who has taken the time and traveled to talk with me here and on air for their advice, their honesty, and for sharing their stories with us here on air. They will continue to inform and inspire me for years to come. I want to thank Heritage Radio for hosting this show and giving me the creative freedom to discuss any and every topic I have ever wanted. No questions asked. Thank you. I want to thank the Screaming Females for letting me use one of my favorite songs in the entire world as the theme song to this show. I think I get questions about that theme song every week. It's the Screaming Females. Look them up. They're amazing. But most of all, I want to thank all of you for listening. Although we may not see each other face to face, I really felt like each of these shows was something more intimate and personal than I've ever done online. So many of you have come up and told me how you listen in your cars, alone in your work studios, or while you're getting dinner ready for your family. Those very private moments are special and sacred to me, and it has been such an honor to be a part of them. Thank you for welcoming me into your homes, your cars, and your studios. Until the next time we meet, best wishes for a safe and happy holiday and a truly fulfilling, challenging, and exciting new year. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.